Scripture reading for today's sermon will begin in Ephesians chapter 4. We'll read 417 all the way through 521. Hear now God's word. Now this I say and testify in the Lord, that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, due to their hardness of heart. They have become callous and have given themselves up to sensuality, greedy to practice every kind of impurity. But that is not the way you have learned Christ, assuming that you have heard about him and were taught in him, as the truth is in Jesus, to put off your old self, which belongs to your former manner of life and is corrupt through deceitful desires, and to be renewed in the spirit of your minds, and to put on the new self, created after the likeness of God, in true righteousness and holiness. Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor, for we are members one of another. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger, and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up, as fits the occasion, that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God, by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children, and walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. But sexual immorality and all impurity or covetousness must not even be named among you as is proper among saints. Let there be no filthiness, nor foolish talk, nor crude joking, which are out of place. But instead, let there be thanksgiving. For you may be sure of this, that everyone who is sexually immoral or impure, or who is covetous, that is, an idolater, has no inheritance in the kingdom of Christ and God. Let no one deceive you with empty words, for because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. Therefore, do not become partners with them. For at one time you were darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of light is found in all that is good and right and true. And try to discern what is pleasing to the Lord. Take no part in the unfruitful works of darkness, but instead expose them. For it is shameful even to speak of the things that they do in secret. But when anything is exposed by the light, it becomes visible. For anything that becomes visible is light. Therefore, for it says, Awake, O sleeper, and arise from the dead, and Christ will shine on you. 
Look carefully then how you walk, not as wise, but as as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Thus ends the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. Let's pray together as we come to God's holy word. Thank you, Father, for your word. Thank you that your word and these words that Paul wrote down here in Ephesians chapters 4 and 5 are not just words that he came up with, but that these are the words that your Holy Spirit inspired in him and provoked him to write so that they are your words that we are reading today, that they are breathed out by you, And so, Father, we pray that as we come to them, that you will give us careful understanding of what these words mean, and that you would help us, Father, to to be willing to frame our lives around the truth of your word in every single way, and that you, Father, would give us not only understanding, but the grace to be able to live according to your word. We pray for illumination, Holy Spirit, make these words known to us. We pray for great conviction. We pray that you would help us in every part of our being, in our minds, in our hearts, in our spirits, and with all of our strength to be able to love the Lord our God, for this is what is pleasing to you. So may the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So this morning, before we get back to the book of Jonah, which we're going to do next week, we're going we're to finish it up in two more, two more sermons just before Christmas. But this morning, I wanted to follow up with last week's emphasis on prayer from Paul's exhortation in Colossians chapter 4. I wanted to follow that up with another super important emphasis that Paul also exhorts us to in the book of Colossians in chapter 3 and then repeats here and kind of gives us a little more of here in the book of Ephesians in chapter 5. And that emphasis is on the central importance of music, music in the Christian life. Both in worship, when we gather together here on the Lord's Day, but also all throughout our lives as God's people. Paul is teaching that God has given His people music as a gift. And that means both singing and playing, as we'll see, music uh, accompanied by instruments in order to give praise and thanks to Him and in order to build one another up and strengthen one another and encourage one another as we walk by faith in our God together. That's what we're going to look at here today. 
And I love the, the quote from Martin Luther that we've been running in the bulletin for the past several weeks, and, and we talked about it even on the music night recently. Uh, Luther says, it's on page six of your bulletin, but you can just listen. Luther says very simply, music is the art of the prophets. It's like when we're singing from God and singing to God, it's coming from Him and from His Holy Spirit, like, like prophetically uttered word almost. Music is the art of the prophets, and it is the only art that can calm the agitations of the soul. It is one of the most magnificent and delightful presents that God has given to us. And if you're familiar at all with the life of Martin Luther, as he taught God's Word, as he was a professor of theology, as he was a pastor, then you know how centrally important music was to him in every part of his life. From the corporate worship of God in the church to the daily life of fellowship among the people of God. They were always singing together to the daily life of his own personal faith and devotion to the Lord. He was always singing to the Lord. Luther understood that just like written language, just like words are, are a gift that God gives that corresponds to our minds in order to convey truth to us. This is how God helps us understand truth in our minds. He gives us language. He gives us words so that we can give expression to that truth in our lives. Even in the same way, Luther knew music is a gift that God gives that corresponds to our souls, to our hearts, which is Paul's emphasis here in Ephesians chapter 5, so that we can respond to the truth that God has revealed to our minds through His Word in a way that doesn't just involve our minds, but involves our whole being as we are created in His image, body, mind, soul, heart, and spirit, including every part about us, what we do, our will, what we think in our minds, what we say with our mouths, and what we feel emotionally with our hearts. We need to be praising God, don't we, with all of us in every aspect of our humanness as we have been created in His image. We need to be expressing things like, like wonder and awe and gratitude and praise and love to our God with words that give praise to Him and also with music, with song and with melody played on instruments, Paul is saying here, that stir our souls and our emotions, our hearts, in a way that corresponds to the great truth that He has given to us as we sing praises to Him, as we give thanks to Him through what Paul calls singing and making musical melody to the Lord, both with our hearts from our hearts. That's what we're going to talk about today. And like Luther said, what a gift music is from God when it is connected to, when it is flowing out from, when it is, when it is responding to, when it is giving heartfelt expression to the great realities that God has revealed to us about His nature, about His mighty works, and about the love with which He has so richly loved us and the redeeming work that Jesus has done on the cross. That's the kind of stuff we need to be singing about and making music about to the praise of our God. Now, understand that this is how the whole book of Ephesians works, in fact. Paul gives us a bunch of truth in our minds that then leads to how we live our lives and how we express praise to God in light of that truth. So 
think through the book of Ephesians with me kind of as an overview really quickly. In chapters 1 and 2, Paul focuses our minds with words and language and ideas and truths. He focuses our minds on the great awesome truths of the redemption that we have through faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. He's blessed us, Paul says, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Blessings of election, blessings of sanctification, predestination for adoption to God Himself as His sons. We've been redeemed, he says, through the blood of Christ. We've been forgiven from our trespasses. Uh, He's revealed His will to us and all of His purposes. He's given us an eternal inheritance. Paul's just telling us point by point by point what God has done for us. He's sealed us with the Holy Spirit by grace alone, through faith alone, in Jesus Christ alone. And then in chapter 2, he goes on and he describes and reveals how this redemption that we've been given by God brings reconciliation between sinners and the Holy God. And also, he says, between Jews and Gentiles, between people from all over this world, so that through faith in Jesus, we are all one body, one one family of God's children gathered together. And then in chapter 3, he reveals the great mystery of God's merciful ways in in doing that, in, in creating this great body of Christ, so that together we all have access to God through faith in Jesus. And then he shifts gears, see, having revealed all of this truth about who God is and what His holiness is, what He's done to lavish redeeming blessings on us, what we are as a result of it, what the body of Christ is. Now, he says, you have to live your lives like what you are, according to the truth of who God is, who you are in Christ. So, in other words, the truth has to define you. It can't just rattle around in your heads. It's got to come pouring out of you in every aspect of your lives. And so he tells us to put on the new self, right? This is what Ian was reading to us a minute ago. Put on the righteousness of Christ in terms of how you live. And he gives all kinds of practical ways that that needs to look and manifest itself, right? Truthfulness needs to come out of us. We need to be in control of our emotions. Be angry at things that are righteous to be angry at, but don't sin. Be in control of that anger. Don't let it be in control of you. Denying the devil opportunity to sow sow corruption and division and destruction in our lives and in our relationships. Being the people of God means to look like lives of hard work so that we can earn money and not be dependent on others, but also so that we can share with others generously. It needs to look like speech that builds other people up instead of tearing other people down. It needs to look like living deliberately by God's grace and God's strength in ways that don't grieve the Holy Spirit. It needs to look like putting away all of the divisive and destructive attitudes that give rise to sin in our lives. And living in godly love and kindness and forgiveness towards one another, even as God has forgiven us in Christ Jesus. And in chapter 5, he sums all of that up in verse 1 by saying the principle is this, that as redeemed people who have been given all of these blessings and made new in Christ and reconciled to God, we need to be imitators of God. It's got to change entirely the way that we live 
As God's beloved children, more and more and more, we need to be characterized by the holiness and the righteousness and the love and the grace that characterizes God, our Heavenly Father. And then all throughout chapter 5, Paul continues to specify what that looks like in various contexts of life now and in various relationships. As we, verse 15, look carefully to how we walk, making wise use of our time, avoiding foolishness, devoting ourselves to the will of God in all kinds of ways, and in relationship to all kinds of people in our lives, all in ways that bring glory to God. And so see, this is Paul's whole emphasis all throughout the book of Ephesians. His emphasis is to reveal truth to us, first of all, about the greatness of God and the greatness of God's purposes and redeeming love, and then to exhort us as people who have been redeemed to live our lives in light of that truth, to let that truth define us in the way that we live and come pouring out of us so God's truth can't just be academic, right? It can't just affect our minds. It can't just affect our intellects. It has to affect every aspect of our lives so that more and more we're becoming people who love the Lord our God. How did Jesus say it? With all our heart and with all our soul and with all our mind and with all our strength, every part of us as created in God's image. Those are Jesus' words in Mark 12 and Luke 10. And Paul's saying exactly the same thing. And he's spelling out what it looks like for those who have been loved by God to the uttermost to love God with every single aspect of our image-bearing humanity. With our minds, of course, as we learn and absorb all of the majestic truths of God's glory and God's ways. And with our hearts... And the word hearts, this is Paul's emphasis here in Ephesians 5, the word hearts in Greek was a word that referred to the seat of the feelings, the affections, the emotions, the desires that God has created image-bearing people to have. We have to love God as much with that as with our minds. And with our souls, which is sometimes synonymous with hearts, but, but most often that refers to the whole life to our being, body, and spirit in God's image. And we have to love Him, Jesus says, with our strength, which is, which is Jesus' way of referring to our will and what we do. So He's saying, look, in all that you are, love God in everything you do with everything that you've got in Christ Jesus. That's what it means. Not just with your mind. And not just with what you do in your will, but also with your heart. Emotionally, affectionately, love the Lord your God. In every aspect, willfully, mindfully, emotionally. And so Paul's saying the same thing, and it's in the middle of all of that emphasis in Ephesians 5, that he's exhorting Christians in verse 18. Now look at verse 18. Here's our focus. These two verses... Now he's exhorting Christians to, he says, be filled with the Holy Spirit. And as we're filled with the Holy Spirit, the chief evidence of that ought to be this. Verse 19, regularly addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, 
giving thanks always for everything to God, the Father, in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. And we're going to look at what that means today. In the context of everything that Paul is saying in chapter 5 and in the book of Ephesians as a whole, what he's saying there in those verses is that singing and music needs to be right at the very central core of the expression of our faith, of our piety, and of our fellowship, and of our lives in Christ Jesus as one of the primary ways that we live our lives together and that we worship our God together. So here this morning, what I want to do is unpack this. And what Paul says here in verses 19 and a little bit in 20, but mostly in 19, because there's actually a whole lot that's packed into the few words that he says here, which is really, really important for us to grasp so that we can really understand from the Bible's perspective, not from our own perspective, not from our culture's perspective, not from the world's perspective, but from God's perspective, we can really understand just how important music is and how God wants us to use music in our lives in Him and in our worship for Him. So, several important things we need to see and do here in order to get what Paul is exhorting us to here. We need to understand the words he uses. We need to understand the grammar that he's using here or else we will misunderstand what he's actually saying. And many, many people have misunderstood this verse because they didn't pay close enough attention to Paul's words and to Paul's grammar. So I spent all week in that. And we need to understand, secondly, what psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs are. Because that's what he's telling us to sing. And we need to understand how... Whatever that is informs what we, are be, what we are to be addressing one another with and what we are to be singing to God and making music to God with in praise. And then we need to understand what Paul means when he tells us to be singing and making melody to the Lord with our heart. And there's again been some misunderstanding with regard to that because we didn't pay careful enough attention to Paul's actual words and the grammar he uses. But when we do understand it, we'll understand that, that all of this lies very much at the very heart of what Paul is so passionately encouraging Christians to do in these verses. So, first and foremost, as we get going here, look at verse 18. Because we need to understand that everything that Paul is encouraging us to do in verse 19 in terms of song and music is in direct and immediate connection to and reference to the command that he gives in verse 18. Do this, and here's how you do it, is how this works. This is where a big part of the grammar comes into play. So focus with me for a second here on verse 18. Remembering, of course, everything that we just talked about in terms of the context of the book of Ephesians as a whole, right? The overall flow of what Paul is saying in this book about who we are in Christ as the redeemed new creations reconciled to God and how that affects the way that we live our lives in every aspect of our humanness, mind, body, heart, soul, strength, in love towards God. One of the ways that Paul emphasizes that connection the most 
between the truth that he's revealed and the life that that truth defines is this command in verse 18 to first of all not be drunk with wine, but instead be filled with the Holy Spirit. And we've, we've, we've done a deep dive into that verse before and covered that command when we studied verse 18 in depth and learned all about sanctification in the Christian life. But the essence of it is this. Paul is saying, don't live like the typical fleshly, unbelieving pagans in the world who are basically constantly under the influence of alcohol to the extent that it's producing in them a self-serving, ungodly, fleshly kind of debauchery in their lives. Because their feelings, their passions are just being driven by the drink. And whatever's coming out of them is the product of that. They're just living for the sake of their own sinful passions all the time. Now what Paul doesn't mean there is that the experience of human feelings and emotions and affections is in itself bad. And that we should pursue lives that try to suppress those things as much as possible. Lives of kind of formalistic, stoic, monastic, like monks up in a monastery, obedience to God without being made to feel good about anything in this world. Devoid of emotion, devoid of feeling, or, or, or where emotion and feeling are, are at least being massively subdued. Paul doesn't say that here at all. What he says is, don't let your emotions be affected too much by the drink. Let them instead be affected by the Holy Spirit. Right? What he means is that letting too much strong drink too often drive our feelings, drive our emotions in ungodly and fleshly and self-absorbed ways is the problem. And so instead of being filled with too much wine, we should be filled with the Holy Spirit. We should be constantly under the influence of the Holy Spirit in our lives. All day, every day. Kind of like some of the pagans were with alcohol. And that's going to lead to what? Immediately, he says afterwards in verse 19, if you're constantly filled with the Holy Spirit all day, every day, it's going to lead to addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It's going to lead to emotional outpouring according to the truth that the Holy Spirit has revealed to us and explained to us and taught us and convicted us of in our minds. That's going to then flow down into our hearts and flow out of us in this way. Singing and making melody to the Lord in our hearts, giving thanks always and for everything to God. So see, that's what it is. Don't be under the influence of alcohol in a way that's producing debauchery because it's causing you to indulge in fleshly sinful passions. Instead, be under the influence of the Holy Spirit in a way that's producing great heartfelt, which means emotional, outpourings of song and music to the Lord. So... Singing and music from the heart should be one of the primary ways in which the indwelling Holy Spirit of God is influencing our lives, mind, strength, and heart to be expressing love towards God. And the words in verse 19 are really, really important. Look at the words there. Addressing, you see these words that end in ing? Addressing, singing, making melody. Those are, all, those are all participles in the Greek grammar that Paul wrote them in, which simply means that they're modifying a verb. 
What verb are they modifying? The one in verse 18. Be filled with the Holy Spirit. The command, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Be under His influence instead of under the influence of alcohol constantly in your life. And, and what that ought to look like to be filled with Him and under His influence is these participles that immediately follow. If you're being filled with the Holy Spirit constantly in your life, it's going to look like addressing one another in song and singing and making melody to God. Now, is that all it looks like? Should being filled with the Holy Spirit, should being under the influence of the Holy Spirit, should that be manifested mentally and intellectually? Like in Bible study and and learning good theology? Absolutely, of course it should. Should it be manifested in continual, watchful, thankful prayer like we talked about last week? Absolutely, of course it should. Should being filled with the Holy Spirit be manifested in ongoing, growing holiness and obedience in our lives? Yes, of course it should. But notice that the first thing that Paul talks about as manifesting the Holy Spirit's indwelling influence in our lives is the outpouring of song and music from the heart. That's the Greek word cardia. We get our word cardiac from from this Greek word. And when we use it, we speak about something cardiac, we're talking about the the physical organ in your body that's pumping blood all throughout your body. But but that's not what they meant by this word in Greek. That's not what Paul's talking about. He's not talking about your cardiac organ that's suffusing blood all throughout your body. The word in Greek refers to the seat of the feelings and the affections in the human life. It refers to the emotional part of us as we have been made in the image of God who is also an emotional God. Not in a way that's identical to us, but He is. Is He not? A God of great affections and feelings and emotions. And Paul is saying... That part of us, the emotional part of us, shouldn't be defined and driven and governed by sinful impulses, by worldly influences, which lead towards debauchery. But it also shouldn't be suppressed. Shouldn't be squelched because it's a God-given part of us. He made it as He made us in His image. And so... It needs to be defined and driven and governed, but by the Holy Spirit who indwells us, who fills us, who convicts us of God's Word and then causes it to to inflame our hearts with passion and love and affection for God. According to the Word that He's revealed to us and made us understand and believe and become convinced of. God's Word and the Holy Spirit ought to affect our hearts ought to affect our emotional selves and provoke in us outpourings of loving, thankful praise to God in the form, Paul says here specifically, of song and music. Song being sung with your vocal cords and music being played on instruments. Now, look at the first one of the participles there in verse 19. The first word that ends in ing in our English translations, which is modifying that verb, be filled with the Holy Spirit. Being filled with the Holy Spirit means addressing one another. 
Maybe your translation says speaking to one another because the word in Greek, that, that's just what it means. It means speaking with your mouth, with your voice. In our relationship to one another in Christians. But he says to do it in song. Don't just speak to each other prosaically. Don't just, don't just speak to each other like I'm speaking to you now. Speak to each other specifically in song, he says. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs involving the heart's outpouring of affection towards one another and towards God. And the word one another, speak to or address one another, this is important. That word is reflexive grammatically. And so it means, in fact, something far more than just do this one to another. Speak one to another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. It has more of a, an emphasis inward and it has more of an emphasis of for the benefit of. That's what reflexive means. In order to benefit one another, do this. And it's more than just one another. It's in fact, corporately as a body, in order to benefit yourself, do this. That's exactly what Paul is saying grammatically here. For your own good as the body of Jesus Christ, filled with the Holy Spirit, speak together in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. As you're filled with the Holy Spirit, one of the best things that you can do for yourselves as the body of Christ is to sing to one another for the benefit of one another reflexively. Isn't that great? Now, see, music and song and, and giving praise to God and, and singing praises that exalt Him, that's, that's all something that we do that brings glory to God, that brings pleasure to God, right? For sure. But understand what Paul is saying very clearly here is that it is also something that God has given to us in order to benefit us, not just God. God has given song and God has given music as a gift full of the Holy Spirit's power in order to bless us. God the Holy Spirit who indwells us all and unites us all together in Christ and influences our whole lives mentally, physically, spiritually, emotionally to love God and all that we do and with all that we've got has given us music to give expression to our affections and our love for God, and also to help incite in us those emotional feelings of adoration and love and gratitude and praise and affection for our God. To encourage us, to fill us with joy and peace, and to inspire us and to fortify one another and ourselves as His church. And listen, the way that we do music must never ever short-circuit the reflexive benefit of music to the body of Christ, which God has designed to, to impart in our minds and our hearts and our lives. Music is God's way for us both to glorify Him, to please Him, honor Him with praise, and also be greatly blessed by Him in every aspect of our lives. And then Paul gets specific in terms of what the church should sing as we are addressing or speaking to one another, again reflexively, for our own benefit, for our own good. We should be doing it in psalms 
hymns, spiritual songs. These are fascinating words. Those three words, grammatically, they're nouns, and they are in what's called the dative case in Greek, and specifically they are datives of means, which simply means, you don't need to worry about it too much, but what it simply means is that Paul is using those three words to specify how? To specify the means by which the church of Jesus Christ is going to be built up and encouraged and edified and strengthened and inspired by singing music. Psalms is a clear reference to the Old Testament book of Psalms and the 150 Psalms that are in that book. Paul means sing those, which doesn't necessarily mean to sing them all word for word, but to sing especially the truth that they are expressing. And we see examples of this in the New Testament when they're singing the Psalms from the book of Psalms. They're not always just singing them word for word and verse for verse. They're taking the key theological concepts that God has revealed in those and, and they're singing those concepts so they're rearranging them some. And that's what Paul is, is talking about here. Using the book of Psalms in order to, to give shape to and be a paradigm for what the church of Jesus Christ sings in the New Testament in terms of the great themes of human experience, right? What we go through in this life and how much we need our God as we're going through it and how great and awesome our God is in order to meet our needs in every experience of our lives. We ought to be singing like that. Not just saying how great God is, but also saying how much we need Him and how thankful we are for the ways that He meets our needs. That ought to be paradigmatic for us. So sometimes we do sing psalms word for word. Very often the words of the, the hymns, I don't have a hymnal, but the hymns that we sing in those blue books and that we sing in our bulletins, very often the words of those hymns are coming straight out of the psalms. And they follow the, the teaching of a particular psalm, like the one that actually that we're going to sing after the sermon, right? My, my soul finds rest. That, comes, that psalm or that hymn comes straight out of Psalm 62 and is expressing everything that is revealed in that psalm. So, many, many of the hymns that we sing, both ancient and modern, are based on the Psalms and are expressing the same truths about God, the same feelings and experiences of the people of God that are articulated in the Psalms. So the Psalms ought to give form, substance, and shape to what we sing together in all those kinds of ways. But Paul says also that we are not and should not be limited to only singing the Old Testament Psalms. We should also sing hymns and spiritual songs shouldn't be limited to the Old Testament Psalms any more than God has limited His revealed Word to us to the Old Testament Scriptures. I mean, and praise the Lord, right? That He's given us more Scripture than just the Old Testament Scripture. Otherwise, we wouldn't know anything about Jesus as our Messiah and the fulfillment of all of the prophecies and the redeeming work of God and the new life that we have in Him and all of the great spiritual blessings that He's lavished us with in the New Covenant. And the great hope of eternal glory that's awaiting for us when, when Jesus returns. We wouldn't know anything about that without the New Testament Scriptures. And now, see, God has revealed all of that wonderful truth to us in the New Testament Scriptures. Now the Holy Spirit also provokes us to sing 
to, to the praise of God and for our blessing as His body to sing hymns and spiritual songs that articulate and exult in all of that new covenant truth. So he says, sing hymns. This is a fascinating word. The word hymns would have shocked the Ephesians. The Christians in Ephesus would have said, wait, pause, sorry, what? Now you think of hymns as just what comes from your hymnal, the Christian book of songs. That's not what hymns were in Paul's day. And when he says to them, sing psalms, they go, great, those are biblical songs, we got that. Sing hymns, they go, hit the brakes. Wait, what? You know why? Here's what hymns were. They were pagan songs. That's what they were. They were the kinds of songs that pagan people sung in order to magnify and sing praise to their false gods and also to sing the virtues of and sing in praise of their mighty men and their heroes who had gone out to battle and conquered and done fantastic things, right? In their pagan cultures, they sang these big, loud, robust songs that were designed musically to correspond to the big overblown reputations of their false gods and their heroes and were designed to excite, the music was designed to excite the singers as they were exalting their gods and their heroes. So imagine the church in Ephesus. You want us to sing that? You want us to sing what the pagans are singing? You want us to sing what they're singing to their false gods? And Paul goes, well, yeah, just don't sing those kinds of songs to the false gods. Sing it to the true God, but sing that way. Sing those kinds of songs. Sing him. Sing big, bold, loud, robust, exciting, inspiring songs about the true and living and triune God who has done far more abundantly beyond all that you could ever ask or think. Sing songs like that to Him because He's the only one actually worthy of songs like that. And then thirdly, Paul uses the word spiritual songs. Psalms, as, as content substantively and as, and as a paradigm and a pattern framing up the kinds of things we sing about. Hymns, big bold songs to the greatness of our God and His praise. And then spiritual songs. The word here is odes in Greek. Odes is a, a very general word in Paul's day that was used of all kinds of songs. Folk music. Songs that were sung on all kinds of occasions as reflections on all kinds of things and expressions of all kinds of experiences. And so Paul adds the word spiritual here. Sing, sing odes but sing spiritual odes. Sing them spiritually, right? He, he wants to distinguish singing these kinds of songs from the way, again, that secular people without reference to God sing. Don't just give expression to every experience and everything in your life in a, in a worldly way. Do it in a spiritual way as you are filled with the Spirit. So Paul... See, here's what he means. He wants us to sing with reference to the truth that the Holy Spirit has revealed to us in the Word of God in a great diversity of ways which we would sing unto the Lord about God's nature and God's goodness and about our lives in Him. 
and sometimes uh, life in Him is not fun, right? Sometimes life is hard, painful, sorrowful. Well, there should be songs about that. Sometimes life is wonderful and circumstances are pleasant. Well, there should be songs that correspond and are set to music that evokes those kinds of feelings. Sometimes we're captivated by the beauty of God's creation and by a sense of wonder at God's providence and faithfulness to our lives. And and there should be lots of songs that can express that and music that evokes feelings like that. Sometimes we're overwhelmed, right, by the circumstances that we're facing. And we need to cry out, I need thee, oh, I need thee, every hour I need thee. We need songs like that. And we need the music not to be happy, clappy, and trite. We need it to to reflect and to correspond to those kinds of feelings and experiences and circumstances. Other times we are so exuberant because of how lavishly God has heard our prayers and answered us and blessed us that we need to cry out, Great is thy faithfulness. Oh God, my Father. Or here is love, vast as the ocean. Loving kindness like a flood. We need to sing like that. Or we need to sing, when all else fails, He still remains. Jesus is mine. And so the point simply is this, that that through the spiritual lens of the Holy Spirit's indwelling, filling influence in our lives and the Word of God that He reveals to us, we should be singing all kinds of songs to express the full range of human experiences and feelings and emotions like they did in the psalm, like, like David did, like Asaph did, like the sons of Korah did in the Old Testament psalms, both with words and music, that correspond to all of those experiences and feelings as we trust God in those times, as we cry out to Him in those times, as we give praise to Him in those times. And then the the second and third main participles that Paul uses there in verse 19 are two words that go together. So he's told us that being filled with the Holy Spirit means speaking or addressing one another, speaking together for our own good. Psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Now he says at the end of verse 19, it also means singing and making melody to the Lord, both with our hearts. The word hearts there attaches to both words grammatically. Singing and making melody. The first word, singing, means what we do with our voices when we're singing. The second word, making melody, means what we do with musical instruments. That's literally what the word means. The Greek word there for making melody is the word salantes. It's the same word as the word psalms in the Old Testament. And in the Old Testament, the psalms were not just sung verbally. They were almost always accompanied by instrumentation. Because the word itself, salos, same word that Paul's using here for making melody, salantes, it specifically means songs that are accompanied by instrumentation. That's literally what that word means in distinction from other kinds of singing words. Now sometimes, a cappella songs where we're singing with our voices only, Sometimes that's magnificent and beautiful and wonderful. Or when the instruments 
stop for a verse during a hymn and we just use our voice, that's spectacular, isn't it? But, but look here, very specifically, Paul is saying he doesn't want us to only or even primarily do that. Because he very specifically tells us that speaking together in psalms, hymns, and all kinds of spiritual songs means both singing with our voices and salante, making melody with musical instruments. That's, that's what the word means. And then he says, singing and making melody to the Lord. And that also is a reflexive term, grammatically, just like to one another was at the beginning of the verse. So here he's bookending it, see? Here at the beginning it meant do this for your own benefit. Here it means for God's pleasure, for God's benefit, for God's blessing. And so here in this one verse, Paul clearly reveals to us that singing and music are gifts from God that He has given to us as outpourings of the indwelling Holy Spirit, both for His glory and for our benefit. And if we're going to sing in a way that God wants us and is according to what Paul is teaching us and commanding us to do, then we have to be singing that way, for God's glory and for our benefit. And then he says, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart. And that's that same word. Cardia. And it is referring grammatically back to both of those participles. Singing and making melody. Singing with our voices and solos. Making music with musical instruments. Both of those activities have to be done. Both for God's glory and for our blessing and our benefit. Emotionally, from the heart, cardia, from the seed of the feelings and the emotions and the affections specifically. That's how we ought to be singing and playing music instrumentally. It can't just be mechanical. It can't just be mathematical. It can't just be intellectual. It can't just be the product of our minds and what comes off of our lips or out of our fingers. It has to all be the outpouring of the heart. It has to all be the expression of our deepest emotional affections for God and our need for His grace and, and our praise of His glory and majesty and our love for Him as our Abba Father. You know where you see one of the best examples of this kind of thing? Singing and making melody with instruments unto the Lord from the heart in the Bible? Psalm 150. We read it responsibly together at the beginning of the service, right? It's just one place of many in God's Word where everything that we're talking about here comes together in an actual song that was sung and played on musical instruments in the temple of God in the Old Testament for the glory of God and the blessing of His people in a way that came from the heart. The theme of Psalm 150 is the praise of God for the great God he, for who He is, and specifically for the great and mighty deeds that He has accomplished. It's ascribing praise to God for the sake of God's glory and pleasure, but also in a way that will be a great blessing to the people of God 
in every aspect of their beings, in their minds as they focus on the truth, and in their spirits and in their hearts, their thoughts and their emotions and their wills will all be stirred and provoked by Psalm 150, and they will be encouraged and strengthened and inspired as they sing God's praise and hear the music on the kinds of instruments that it talks about being played the way that they're talking about. What kinds of instruments does Psalm 150 specify? Trumpets and lutes and pipes, those are wind instruments, all the categories, see? Harps and strings, those are stringed instruments. Tambourines and cymbals, those are percussion instruments. Use them all, God's saying. And use them in a way that corresponds to what you're singing in order to engage mind, body, and heart in the praise of God. In fact, Psalm 150 also uses this scary little word called dance. It does. It does. Be careful. It does. And I, like with playing instruments, you got to be careful, right? We don't just want to be going crazy. But it's okay for your posture to be affected as your heart is singing and making melody to the Lord. You can raise your hands. You can give expression in a self-controlled, restrained way. I know, it's not your grandfather's Baptist church. (laughs) But look, if that's too much, just think about the, the instruments, right? All kinds of instruments, he's saying, can, should be used to give praise to God in a way that also blesses and encourages and strengthens His people in their minds, in their wills, and in their emotions. So listen, nowhere in Scripture are we told that the right strategy is to use fewer instruments or that we should only use certain kinds of instruments and that we shouldn't, there are certain kinds of instruments that we shouldn't use. Nowhere does it say that in God's Word. Or that we should only use instruments very, very sparingly when we sing to God. In fact, Paul says we should be playing instruments from the heart emotionally. In Psalm 150, he says we should sing psalms. And one of the psalms at least says that we should use all kinds of instruments. Wind instruments, stringed instruments, percussive instruments. And that we should play them vigorously. Psalm 150 in verse 5 says what? Praise Him with sounding cymbals. Praise Him with loud crashing cymbals. Because that's the kind of music that the big awesome God is worthy of. And that gives some kind of musical expression to His great, great music. Here's what I think it means very, very simply. It's that when we're singing to God from the heart, and when we're making melody, when we're making music with instruments to God from the heart, those two things, right? Singing and making music, vocal song and instrumental music, those have to correspond to one another and support one another given whatever song we're singing to the Lord from our hearts. If we're singing about the greatness of God and His ways, like Psalm 150, then the music and the instruments should reflect that as much as the tune and as much as our voices and the words that we sing. We should be singing vocally with strength and vitality and with vigor and passion. And the instruments should be doing the same thing. And we got to be careful, like I said a minute ago. Because we can go wrong, can't we? 
We can overdo things easily and go wrong. And we can go wrong in one of two ways. First, we can go wrong by singing words that are not really full of biblical meaning. By having weak, fleshly, worldly, me-centered words instead of God-centered words. And then, playing big, strong, powerful, instrumental music so that the singing and the playing don't correspond. And in fact, what we're most impressed with is the playing and not the singing. See, we can go wrong that way, can't we? The instrumental music can overpower the singing and distract from it. But see, we can also go wrong the other way. On the other hand, by singing words that are full of rich, deep, powerful, profound, biblical truth and meaning, but by playing weak music, or music that is tuned improperly to the theme of the song, or that is anemic and doesn't correspond to the song, either in terms of the richness of the words and the power of the words and the truth, or it's not from the heart, the music. It's not coupled to the vocal singing so as to help us all sing also from the heart, both intellectually and emotionally, which is Paul's point here. And look, only singing that way, right? In all that we are in God's image, both body and mind and heart, heart, cardia, and spirit, thoughts, words, feelings. Only, that's the only way that our singing will be worthy of the great God who He is and that our music will be worthy of the great God who He is. Now here's my own little go-to illustration of how the music and the instruments should work together with the words and the lyrics and the vocal singing that we give to the Lord. It seems to me that it needs to be something like, here's, it's just an illustration, uh, the lighting in an art museum. If you were to walk into the Louvre in France to see the Mona Lisa and all of the other uh, exquisite, wonderful artwork that's on display in the Louvre, you wouldn't want to walk in, right? And have like all of those colored concert lights flashing around and a fog machine going and a disco ball spinning and there's lights all over the walls. You wouldn't want that, right? That's... That would be using the lights in a way that's overblown and distracts from the art. And the art's the point. But look, you don't also want to walk into the Louvre, do you? In order to look at the Mona Lisa and in order to look at all the beautiful paintings there and there's no light. Or the lights are very, 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 very dim. You would want the lights very carefully and strategically set and placed to illuminate the artwork so that you can see it and appreciate it and be moved by the intricacy and all of the, the brush strokes and the fine details and the beauty so that you could get right up close to it and appreciate all and then stand back from it and take it in as a whole and just be moved by that beautiful art. Or another very, very basic illustration might be the kind of, um, the kind of wagon or cart or carriage that you would want to use, that you would need, that would be appropriate to carry a particular kind of cargo. Something small and cheap, inexpensive and valueless can be hauled around on a little inexpensive wagon. Something big and heavy requires a cart of, of suitable size and shape and strength to be able to bear the load. 
something or, 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 or someone valuable, important, requires a sturdy, stable, safe, comfortable, probably even stylish carriage if you're hauling around somebody of importance. Right? Don't take the, don't take the king and haul him around on a, on a manure cart. Right? Worthy of precious cargo or dignified passengers. So I, just illustrations. Music, instrumental music, Paul is saying, and, and Psalm 150 is, is displaying, the music needs to correspond in every possible way to the song that we're singing. It needs to correspond in terms of tone. It needs to correspond in terms of mood and theme, right? Sorrowful songs need quiet, somber music. Song, they needs music that corresponds to the way that we're feeling when we sing songs like that. Songs expressing great need and dependence on God who is mighty and merciful and powerful, but also very, very gentle and a tender shepherd. He holds us like nursing lambs in His arms, Isaiah 40 says. Songs like that need gentle, quiet, kind of pastoral music to correspond. Songs of rejoicing need big, bright, exuberant, uplifting tunes and music. Songs of praise to the majesty and greatness of God need to be big, powerful, triumphant tones like the hymns of Paul's day. And lots of instruments played enthusiastically and robustly. Like loud crashing cymbals, for example. And the voices of God's people need to rise to the occasion and the tone and the feeling and the mood, whatever it is. Don't ever let yourself sing to the Lord only from your mind and not with your heart. Don't ever let yourself just be looking and just mumbling the words. Sing out. And I know I'm like you. I can't sing like Stan can sing. I can't sing like Jason can sing. My voice warbles and cracks just like yours, but it's okay. Do your best and just sing to God and try to listen to those guys and follow along because they give you something good to aim at and so do the musical instruments. But, but sing from the heart. So illustrations aren't perfect and if you push any metaphor too far, things are going to get weird. But the point is, what Paul is describing here in, in, in Ephesians 5 and what Psalm 150 is displaying is that when it comes to singing and making music to the Lord from the heart, the carriage of the instrumental music needs to correspond to the cargo of the words and the truths that are being sung, right? The lighting in the museum, which is the music, needs to correspond to the priceless artwork of God and His grace and truth of which we are singing Important truths demand impressive music. If we are to sing and make melody to the Lord with our hearts both. In a way that both glorifies Him and blesses and strengthens us. In all of that we are. Mind, heart, body, and will. And all too often I think it's all too easy to err on one side or the other. We can have anemic words. We can have music that is not just vibrant and corresponding, but is overblown and distracting like the disco ball in the Louvre. Music that we've made the distinction before between something that is magisterial, something that takes charge, something that rules, 
And, and on the other hand, something that is ministerial, something that serves like a minister. So if, if the music takes the magisterial role too much and isn't just a worthy servant, then it might not be honoring or glorifying to God and it won't be helpful to us either. But see, robust words, great, powerful, biblical, magisterial words and truths should, Psalm 150 displays and demonstrates, should be accompanied by big, powerful, moving music. Lots of instruments of all kinds, played with corresponding exuberance and tone and mood so that all together we can sing and make melody to the Lord in a way with both voices and instruments that He's worthy of as the great God and loving Father who He is. we got to stop, but let's, um, let me bring it to a conclusion in this way. Remember that everything that Paul is saying here in verse 19 is in reference to that command in verse 18, not to be drunk with wine, but instead to be filled with the Holy Spirit which should be prompting music and song that's both powerfully edifying to us and glorifying to God. Paul says that because music and song are always the product of lives and souls of image-bearing people in this world, we can expect that it's not just believers in God to be singing and making music, right? Everybody's singing and making music. It's what image-bearing people do. Just unbelievers do it differently. And we have to be careful not to do it the way they do. Unbelievers, people living in debauchery, people enslaved to sinful passions, they express music very, very differently than people who are devoted to the Lord and His truth. And Paul, in making that point, is thinking in his own mind about what he knew in his mind from the Old Testament Scriptures. Listen, quickly. In Isaiah chapter 5, God is pronouncing woes, like I'm, I'm unhappy with you, woe to you on sinful fleshly people. And he says in Isaiah 5 in verse 11, woe to those, and this is the same thing Paul's saying in Ephesians 5.18, don't get drunk with wine, which is debauchery. Isaiah says, God says in Isaiah 5.11, Woe to those who get up early in the morning so that they may immediately run after strong drink and tarry late into the evening as wine inflames. They're getting drunk all day. Woe to those who live their lives in drunkenness. That's what drunkards are in the Bible. They're not just people who drink a drink sometimes. They're people who drink to excess all the time so that they're always under the influence of alcohol and it's always defining their life. It's inflaming them, it says, and their fleshly passions in all kinds of, of, of debauched ways. One of the most common ways that they're affected by that fleshly overindulgence is this, Isaiah 5, next verse, verse 12. So they're drinking all day and they're inflamed all day. Verse 12, they have lyre and harp and tambourine and flute and wine at their feasts, but they do not regard the deeds of the Lord or see the work of His hands. You see, the wine has made them self-absorbed and not God-absorbed. And that affects the music that inevitably comes out of their lives. They're playing music. They're even using all of the same instruments that we're commanded to use in Psalm 150. But they're not doing it in regard to the deeds of the Lord or the work of His hands. 
So whatever music it is, and whatever they're singing about, and whatever kind of music they're playing, it's not honoring to God. And it's also not doing them any good. It's only pushing them further and further into their debauchery. In Amos 5.23, God responds to the same kind of thing. And He says to Israel, take away from me the noise of these kinds of songs. I'm not going to listen to the melody of your harps. But listen, singing wasn't the problem. Playing melodious music on the harp wasn't the problem. The problem was that their singing and making melody wasn't to the Lord and wasn't a product of the Word and the Holy Spirit within them. It was just self-serving. And it was exciting sinful passions instead of being God-honoring. And it wasn't provoking godly affections and godly emotions like praise and joy and thanksgiving and reverence and penitence also and sorrow and grief. It was always with reference to themselves instead of with reference to God and His majesty and His mercy towards them. Sing and make melody with your hearts. Sing vocally and play music instrumentally to God with your hearts, both of those things, for your own benefit, and you will be blessed and God will be honored. God looks at the heart. He's not impressed just with what we do with our mouths or our hands. Our singing and our music together must always be from the heart, as His Word defines, as His Word describes, in order to be both honoring and glorifying to God and powerfully strengthening and encouraging and edifying and blessing and inspiring to us in all the right ways. Amen? Amen. Let us pray and sing and make music to our God. Our God and our Father, we praise You that in speaking Your words to us in Scripture, You have left no doubt as to what Your will is because, Father, You have been the One. Holy Spirit, You have been the One that inspired these words. Paul didn't get anything wrong. Paul didn't say something the wrong way. Paul didn't use wrong grammar because he did it under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. Father, help us understand and help us as we sing your praises and play music to you to do it in a way that honors you and that blesses you and that glorifies you and that also blesses us as your people and encourages us and strengthens us and inspires us, Father, to live our lives for the sake of your glory because we love you because you have first loved us. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.